Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Brendan Stiley, your co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. And I'm Naomi Soto, your other co-host and health policy professional based in California. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning political shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, July 18th, 2021. And we are bringing you a slightly different show today, although we did look at all of the Sunday shows that were broadcast. Right. NBC was preempted today for the British Open. But in general, as always, or as we kind of do, I don't know, a couple times a year, we're always kind of thinking about the format and making sure we're delivering the best quality show we can. So you may notice a few tweaks here and there in today's episode. So you'll notice that show ratings has been removed from the show. It was just kind of dragging, I felt like, at the beginning before we jumped into clips and and information and data. So we are going to just kind of see how things go without it. And there are some other changes as well, right? Yeah, so we're going to have a segment each as opposed to two segments each. So we're going to try to cover the most notable parts of the show with quality questionable and a segment each. Yeah, and give us the opportunity to really dive deeper into that segment, maybe do some outside research, just kind of bring more to it than we've been able to in the past. We're looking forward to trying this new format and delivering or trying to deliver a valuable show for all of our listeners. So let's begin, as we always do, with quality questionable. Naomi, did you have a quality or questionable moment today? So I looked at This Week on ABC, and there was another Space Bros segment. If you remember last week, I was not a fan. I get it. There was a billionaire in space or almost space, and people were excited about it. And I was trying not to be a hater, but I was just like, okay, it's just one week, whatever. (laughs) Trying. (laughs) You were trying. It, it, It came on again. So take a listen to... A couple of clips from this week. The first was Gio Benitez. He's the ABC News transportation correspondent. He gave kind of a little update about where we are with the Space Bros race. The billionaire space race is now truly underway. Last week, it was Richard Branson. This week, it's Amazon founder Jeff Bezos launching into space aboard his spaceship, the New Shepard. Go, New Shepard, go. Also launching to the edge of the atmosphere, his brother Mark. 82-year-old Wally Funk, who will become the oldest person in space, and now 18-year-old Oliver Damon, who will become the youngest, sharing his excitement in this video posted on Twitter. And in the second clip, you're going to hear a clip. And in this second clip, you're going to hear a brief snippet of Martha's conversation with Mike Massimino. He is a former NASA astronaut. And he was speaking about this new manned crew launch for Blue Origin, which is Jeff Bezos' new side project. And, and Mike, you mentioned the moon. You've got Elon Musk who wants to go to Mars. If they succeed, what are the long-term benefits to humanity? 
Um, I think that uh, one, one thing that I think is here with, with these companies now being involved that NASA has wanted to do for decades, really since its inception, is be able to turn over some of what they've done in space to private enterprise so that it could help our economy, provide economic benefits. So now I think we're seeing some of that. My issues with both of these things, that they're such a reflection of the overt applause of these efforts as opposed to a constructive, I don't even like the word objective, but a critical analysis of what this work is trying to accomplish, trying to get rich people into space. And... (laughs) I that's I d- their enterprise. Yes. <laughs> that's their tagline, getting rich people into space. And I just find it so utterly boring and devoid of any like what what does this mean for the rest of humanity? I thought this clip from Massimino, the reason I brought it cuz I was like, okay, this might be a little interesting, you know, sharing the learnings of NASA into the private sector, but beyond getting other somewhat less rich people into space. Like, what What does that mean, like, technology-wise, innovation-wise? Like, I would love to hear kind of the application of the technology and the science that is could be shared into the private sector in these, like, public-private par- partnerships as opposed to just being like, we'll be able to get more people to space. Anyway, not a fan, find it boring, thought it was over. And if you haven't seen this Seth and Amy really segment about the space bros in space highly 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 recommend okay i've got a few things to say about this about space bros yeah number one for some reason this conversation and it shouldn't surprise you naomi reminds me of jurassic park do you remember in the movie jurassic park where they're all they've all kind of been awed by the dinosaurs they don't think of whether they should and they're and yes it's in that scene where they're sitting around the table talking and the lawyer says, well, and we can charge whatever we want, 5000 a day, 10000 a day, and people will pay it. And that's what this feels like. It yeah. feels like, and then, of course, we hear from John Hammond, and he says, no, 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 you know, every person in the world should be able to see these extraordinary yeah, we'll have a coupon creatures. Day. Say, oh, yeah, we'll have a coupon day or something. <laughs> you know? Jeff Bezos going to have Prime Day for space. Yeah, yeah. Is, <laughs> is that what it's going to be? But it seems like my nightmare. (laughs) Like, where is the scientific awe here? It just seems like, okay, we're going to get some people into space. And by the way, here's the second thing I want to say about this. I have long thought that NASA has done a terrible job with informing the public about what the value is of its mission, because there are so many technologies in our daily lives that started totally with NASA. oh my gosh that yeah they're, they're like should be a sticker the way there is like a little sticker that says you know the fcc or whatever you know on the back of all your electronics there should be something some label that reminds people that every time they put something in the microwave it's because nasa you know like nasa did this nasa made this and a ton of other things. Go to Wikipedia. Just type, what are the things that NASA made? It's a long list. I mean, of I think that's true of science in general, but, right? But, like, we don't, like, what somebody studies in one field can have, like, innumerable repercussions in innovations in other spaces. Right. But the point I'm making here is NASA's already done this. This idea that, like, oh, NASA wants to see how, you know, these private enterprises are doing it because then finally it'll provide economic benefit. It's like it's been providing economic benefit for decades. Yeah, totally. And I think the other parts of this, like, 
I, I feel like Martha Raddus is trying to add like a serious question. Like, what are the long term benefits to humanity? Like, how about what is like the ethical considerations that these rich bros should be doing to ensuring that this is something that will impact like the vast majority of people you know what i mean like there's just such an awe and wonder to it that it makes me like sick so anyway that's my questionable if there's another segment when the next when elon musk's like stupid spaceship goes up I'm going to lose my mind. Well, and here's the thing. They still haven't done anything that no one's ever done before. Like, these are all things that happened, like, 70 years ago. Again, and now I they're doing it again. I highly recommend everybody watch, go to Seth Meyers and look up the Seth and Amy say really, because they're just going to almost space. So I just want to make the point <laughs> that Jim Cameron, the director of Titanic, he went in a submarine to the bottom of the Mar- Mar- Marianas Trench the deepest part of the oceans and he's like gone the deepest of any person in history like that should have gotten more press i don't know this. who knows maybe chris wallace did a power player of the week <laughs> who knows <laughs> brendan what's your quality or questionable so my quality moment comes from face the nation and it was a discussion a really important discussion and we should all be having the discussions about the news that came out last week that apparently and it was started a little bit in the article in the new yorker by susan glasser that indicated that the chairman of the joint chiefs of staff the highest military position in the united states during donald trump's last year in office general mark milley was concerned that president trump was going to stage a coup attempt he was going to try to potentially use the military to remain in power despite having lost the election. And there was a great discussion with former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen. And before I jump into that clip, I'm going to read just one paragraph from the Susan Glasser article in The New Yorker that was completely eye-opening. She said, quote, As the crisis with Trump unfolded and the chairman's worst-case fears about the president not accepting defeat seemed to come true, Milley repeatedly met in private with the Joint Chiefs. He told them to make sure there were no unlawful orders from Trump and not to carry out any such orders without calling him first. Almost a conscious echo of the final days of Richard Nixon, when Nixon's defense secretary, James Schlesinger, reportedly warned the military not to act on any orders from the White House to launch a nuclear strike without first checking with him or with the National Security Advisor, Henry Kissinger. At one meeting with the Joint Chiefs in Milley's Pentagon office, the chairman invoked Benjamin Franklin's famous line saying they should all hang together. To concerned members of Congress, including Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, and also emissaries from the incoming Biden administration, Milley also put out the word, Trump might attempt a coup, but he would fail because he would never succeed in co-opting the American military. Quote, our loyalty is to the U.S. Constitution, Milley told them, and we are not going to be involved in politics. Very serious stuff. And apparently Milley also met repeatedly with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo and then Chief of Staff to Donald Trump, Mark Meadows, to try to like as they said, like, land the plane, like, get this thing done, transition to Biden, and be done with it. Here is a clip 
from today's episode of Face the Nation with John Dickerson talking to former Chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen. You were Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. What do you make of this episode? Well, I think the reporting, uh, from what I understand, has been pretty accurate. Uh, Pretty chaotic time, particularly after the election uh, and uh, the two threats that you talked about, uh, the external one and whether or not we would uh, commence some kind of combat or conflict with Iran and then the internal one in terms of uh, where it might go, particularly with respect to how the military would be used by President Trump to somehow validate that the election actually was a fraud and keep the president in power. I think that's all very accurate and obviously incredibly disturbing, uh, literally in every respect. And it's fair to say uh, you don't train for those kinds of uh, eventualities with a commander in chief. No, you don't. Uh, Although I think General Milley and uh, others who've served over the last four years would tell you it's it's been a very chaotic environment very difficult to predict what was going to happen from day to day uh, and uh, great concern uh, with respect to the possibility of you know some of the orders that might come the military's way which generally will go uh, with the advice uh, of uh, the chairman and certainly directly to a combatant commander Uh, in the case of iran it would go to central command and so the chairman's got in this case, General Milley, I thought, really did the right thing uh, on both fronts, quite frankly. Uh, I don't think he was alone with respect to Iran. Yeah. But I think on the, on the internal uh, potential for a coup, you know, Milley really stood up, did the right thing, and I think made the case that he was the right officer to have in the right job at the right time in a, in a very, very difficult, stunning, uh, and unprecedented situation. So this is just unbelievable that we're having this conversation but it's extremely important that we're having it and just kudos to the team at face the nation for being able to book mike mullen for this conversation and having a serious discussion of it and i almost feel like there should have been like an after discussion with a panel i mean they haven't had panels in forever but at least some sort of expert like talking about what this means for the united states that our military was concerned that the president would stage a coup. It's funny you brought this up, Brendan, as one of your quality moments because Susan Glasser was actually on the panel on this week and she talked Mm -hmm. about this, you know, some of her research that she's doing. P.S. This is part of her book that she's doing with her husband, Peter Baker. So we love a professional collaborative couple. Yeah, they've done 200 interviews, apparently. They're insanely prolific. I don't... What is their childcare situation? I don't understand. And all this time, she's writing like a regular piece in The New Yorker every single freaking week. Yeah, exactly. And he's an active New York Times reporter. So anyway, everyone should publicly thank their childcare provider. But anyway, that's not the point. (laughs) What I was going to say is she mentioned this and I wanted to, I, I also thought it was a really important story, but I thought. I was almost glad that Martha Raddatz didn't make it like a giant, huge segment, but she did raise it as a disturbing kind of new finding about the Trump administration because, and I think a lot of people feel this way, but personally, I feel really annoyed and 
dismissive of Trump stories because I feel like the chaos of the Trump administration took so much of my brain real estate and energy for so long that as much as it's everyone's. Yeah, absolutely. The whole country, right? Like there's a level of fatigue of dealing with that administration. Yeah. Republican or Democrat, I think everyone just there's a level of fatigue of that chaos. And so it's easy to say, like, do we really have to think about this anymore? But in bringing it back up in kind of like a smaller dose way, at least on this week, it it kind of puts it back on the radar. Like, listen, there are people like researching this and documenting this and trying to get the story out there of how close we were to doing a strike in Iran just so Trump could feel good about himself at the end and and what have you. And so I, I just thought it was an interesting approach to raise awareness on this issue to make sure that people understand, like, this is still super disturbing, super upsetting, but that doesn't mean it needs to, you as a news consumer need to, like, spend so much time thinking about this chaotic administration. Yeah. Yeah. There was some, like, really disturbing stuff, like, in that Susan Glasser column, the last time that Millie met with Trump was on January 3rd, and Trump brought up what was happening on January 6th, and he said to Millie, I hope you're ready for what happens there, that you and the military are ready for what's going to happen on January 6th. Yeah, I I also heard on this week where essentially Pompeo and Mark Meadows had to tell Trump, I think it was like on January 3rd, that they had lost time to do anything in Iran. Right, that's like, it. It's over. It yeah. was that, this was like that same meeting. Yeah, exactly. But it's like, cool, that was a long time of him trying to almost start a war. That's awesome. So, Naomi, what did you want to focus on today from the two shows you covered? And by the way, we didn't say what shows we covered. I guess we missed that. Yeah. So I looked at this week, as I mentioned earlier, and also Fox News Sunday, which was hosted by Chris Wallace. And I looked at Face the Nation and I looked at State of the Union. And as we noted, no meet the press today. Exactly. There was something weird about Fox News Sunday, and I'd be really interested in our listeners' feedback and like how right or wrong I am on this, but my life has been like very busy lately, and I have not been following the news as closely as I normally do, and which is like obsessive, <laughs> right? Like that is like my default level. Mm-hmm. And I found the update on Fox News Sunday about the infrastructure bill slash bills pretty confusing and opaque and not very not very accessible I think to the Mm, the average news consumer and like we I had a bunch of questions for you right like what is wait remind, remind me what this means remind me what that means because it just was not very clear and so it's I'm not sure if it's because I've been really busy and a little tired and just haven't been hooked into Twitter as much but I don't think that's like a good enough reason to explain your one of your top stories poorly. So I'm sticking with it. There's a couple of ways that these issues stood out to me. In this first clip, you'll hear the Fox News Sunday correspondent, David Spunk, talk a little bit about where Congress is with the White House in finalizing an infrastructure bill. President Biden promised the American people he'll go big, and he's delivering on that promise with trillions in new spending three and a half trillion to be exact. Democrats call the package human infrastructure, and it includes expanded Medicare benefits, free community college, fighting climate change, and universal pre-K. 
This is in addition to a second $1.2 trillion bipartisan package that includes improvements to roads and bridges. Prominent progressives call the two plans a mere down payment. So what was done well here is that he's clearly explaining that there's two paths, right? That there's well, two, two packages, two packages, two paths. right? There's, there's two, two separate, two separate packages, this traditional infrastructure and human infrastructure. And it doesn't seem like enough context to explain this very complicated way of legislating, which is we're on like, I don't know, the 20th million version of the traditional infrastructure plan. And now the or- Democrats are using reconciliation bill the reconciliation process to kind of come up with the human infrastructure. And the lack of these details makes the interview that Chris Wallace has with Senator Bill Cassidy even more confusing, right? Because it could have laid a base and it doesn't. So in these next few clips, these are snippets of Chris Wallace's conversation with Senator Bill Cassidy. He's a senator from Louisiana. He's been part of the negotiation team and trying to make trying to find a compromise with the White House. So in this first clip, take a listen to how Chris Wallace talks about what's supposed to happen this week. Well, Senator, as David just mentioned, you have uh, the Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer calling for a vote on Wednesday, a cloture vote to, to end the possibility of a filibuster on that infrastructure bill, which hasn't even been completed yet. Two questions. First of all, will you vote for cloture on Wednesday? And two, how confident are you that 10 Republicans will vote, which is the number you need uh, to, to block a filibuster? How can I vote for cloture when the bill isn't written? Unless you want program failure, unless Senator Schumer doesn't want this to happen, you need a little bit more time to get it right. It can absolutely happen, but you need the pay fors. Senator Barrasso spoke to that. If we get the pay fors, we can pass this. So just for clarity's sake, so Majority Leader Schumer wants to pass a cloture vote on Wednesday, which then means they no longer debate the bill and they can move to voting on the bill. And you need 60 votes to accomplish this, right? That's kind of the... I don't know. Some people would say annoying rules of the Senate, but those are the rules of the Senate right now. It at no point do I feel like Chris Wallace properly explains this like very weird moment. Yeah. yeah. And he makes it about like the bill's not written. It is both the fact that the bill's not written and what does this mean for this moment in the legislative process? Like they're jumping to the fact that Schumer wants to vote on this and the the bill's not complete without explaining why that matters right now. Yeah, like why? Why are we doing that now? What what is what is the context for it? Why isn't the bill written? When is the bill going to be written? Where does this align on the timeline of things? Once this happens, does it mean that the bill is just going to pass, or is it going to be several weeks until? Yeah, that does happens? that like is there a certain amount of time between cloture and the final vote that that's supposed to happen, and then that's when Schumer has to finish the bill? Like it's a criticism without explaining the moment. Yeah. To then understand the criticism. Yep. So that's kind of weird and annoying, but that's only a criticism about one of the packages. Chris Wallace then moves on to the second package, the $3.5 trillion package for the childcare, for the pre-K, and I think it's like 
in home health and stuff like that. And I also found these questions without enough context and vague. Okay, let's assume for the sake of this interview that you do get a compromise on the pay fors and on the bipartisan infrastructure bill. At the same time that Chuck Schumer is pushing that, he, on a bipartisan basis, he's also pushing for a three and a half trillion dollar massive spending program, which he wants to pass on a straight party line vote. Question, can you separate the two, support the bipartisan compromise on infrastructure while you oppose the three and a half trillion dollar social spending? Absolutely. Because the $1.2 trillion infrastructure is over five to eight years, depending upon what aspect, the American people universally want. The spending is somewhat on the back end. It won't worsen inflation. It'll create jobs. That is very different than what what, what is being offered with the $3.5 trillion, which even Larry Summers, a left-of-center economist, de- Democrat, says in an overheating economy is problematic. So I think our 1.2 is where the American people want us to be. 3.5 is where the progressive socialist wing of the Democratic Party wants to be. Now, you say you can separate the two and say, look, I'm for this. I'm against that. Do you think that 10 Republicans, which is what you're going to need to pass bipartisan infrastructure, can separate the two and not feel, well, they're a little bit complicit because they went for this $600 billion in new spending on the infrastructure plan? So first, absolutely, I think we can if we get our pay-fors right. That's where we need the cooperation from the White House and from Schumer's office. If we get those, this spending is over five to eight years. It is something which Republicans and Democrats, President Trump advocated for. I think it's something that we can do. The other spending, which is going to fuel inflation, I mean, they're going to transform our economy. They're going to transform our economy back to where it was in the 70s, where inflation was so high, it ate away middle class families' savings. That's what they're trying to do. Uh, uh, And so we can separate those. One's good for the United States. One's good for the American people. The other is fueling inflation. So I think between these two clips, what Cassidy is trying to make crystal clear is that he and other Republicans are willing to vote for the traditional infrastructure plan, but not for the human one, right? Not for the 3.5. Which we all knew. Well, not necessarily, because the whole point would be that some Republicans may not be willing to vote for the traditional one if there's an active other bill that Democrats are going to pass on party line vote. Right. Yeah. And which, what, which it sounds like Chris Wallace is kind of fishing for. Right. Exactly. Like, are you willing to do this when Democrats have this other hand at play? Yeah. And Cassidy saying that's not an issue for me. This is the part that works and we should get it passed, which I think is valuable. But there's still like, I don't know. It seems like they're still speaking in like unnecessary code. It just feels like I you have to be like super well versed into Twitter speak and it just it just did not feel like I could easily know what was happening. And I've only been off of Twitter for like five or six days. You know, like it's not even like it's just I was really surprised by how far away this interview felt from my life and its impact on what it could these bills could do and how close they might be to passing or not passing. Like at no point did I feel like, oh, I understand what's happening this week. And I'm curious as to what will happen on Wednesday. Like I was just like at all points, I'm like, wait, he's saying this and that means why or why they saying why does that mean Z? Like I kept having to 
swim through like layers of subtext as opposed to just knowing exactly where we were in the legislative process for this key bill of the Biden administration. Yeah, I I agree that there's a lot of kind of like Washington speak here that doesn't feel super relevant. And even if you're trying to follow along at home, it's like, I I don't know that this is really giving you a good map of, of the situation. I do want to know, Senator Rob Portman was on State of the Union saying a lot of similar things to what we hear in this clip and these, you know, little bits that you're sharing here. I guess the only point that I would say is a little different is that Portman also talked about the quote-unquote pay-fors, like how they're going to pay for it, but he almost kind of waved his hands at that. He was pretty clear that they're not going to do the IRS thing where they're going to like have the government invest more in the IRS to you know, track down and crack down on fraud, uh, basically saying that, oh, well, that's because it's going in the Democratic bill and we don't want to do something that's going in the Democratic bill. And then Dana Bash is like, hold on. So are you coordinating with the Democrats on this other bill? Are you supporting this other bill? What's going on? And he's like, no, no, no. The bills are completely separate. And to Biden's credit, he said they're separate. Oh, oh, oh. and then the other point I wanted to make was that Portman was saying, uh, yeah, this bill is going to actually help the economy so much that it'll raise tax revenues. So we need to be aware of that and put that into our thinking about how we're going to quote unquote pay for it which is a, an interesting way of saying, like, it's going to pay for itself, right? I mean, that's essentially what he's doing, nodding towards that idea. That's where it's different from Cassidy. Well, let's see if the White House can get those 10 Republicans when it seems like they have different sentiments on the pay-fors. Yeah. Brendan, what did you notice today? So my segment is about COVID-19 and the new surge we're seeing as a result of the Delta variant, with cases rising in every state across the country with LA County reinstating its mask mandate for indoors for those who are vaccinated and unvaccinated, which we dealt with uh, this weekend in person in reality, and just lots of questions and conversations about who is at risk and why people are not getting vaccinated. So what I wanted to do was compare the way State of the Union dealt with this issue and Face the Nation dealt with this issue. Face the Nation, hosted as we know, and as has been the case for a while, is being hosted by John Dickerson. State of the Union today was hosted by Dana Bash. And let's begin with looking at how John Dickerson started his episode talking about this issue. I'm John Dickerson in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, with scientists now warning that if you are unvaccinated, you will likely get the coronavirus. Will that change the minds of the biggest holdouts when it comes to getting vaccinated? America is seeing a summer surge of COVID. Case rates have more than doubled since late June, fueled by the highly contagious Delta variant. The Delta variant is COVID on steroids. So this is a good kind of intro to the way Face the Nation dealt with this topic. And it's, you know, starting with what scientists are warning and case rates and data and quotes. And State of the Union took a slightly different approach In fact, State of the Union was, I would say, practically obsessed with just one statement Joe Biden made over the last few days. And when I say obsessed, I mean obsessed. The first clip you'll hear is from the start of the show and the 
Clips thereafter are from all throughout the show. Pandemic of the unvaccinated. COVID cases rise in every single U.S. state as President Biden pokes social media platforms for letting misinformation spread. The only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, and they're they're killing people. Can America turn things around? While the Biden administration tries to tackle false information about the vaccines, President Biden is saying flat out, He said it on Friday that social media platforms are killing people by allowing vaccine lies to spread. After President Biden said that social medias are killing people, here's what a Facebook official said to CNN in response. But uh, besides that, uh, President Biden did accuse social media platforms uh, of killing people. New topic, Senator. I want you to hear what President Biden said about social media giants and misinformation this week. Killing people. I mean, it really. Look, the only pandemic we have is among the unvaccinated, and that, and they're, and they're killing people. So, in case you didn't get that, uh, earlier this week, Joe Biden said that social media platforms and their misinformation were quote killing people. This is another interesting that you picked this out, Brendan, because before you told me you were talking about COVID, I was thinking about making my segment a frustration about how the shows could not stop obsessing over Facebook is killing people comment by Joe Biden and making this kind of like a White House versus social media platforms, White House versus Facebook on disinformation. I had Vivek Murphy on both of my shows and he was asked about this at length. Yes. Yeah. So Vivek Murphy was on State of the Union. He was not on Face the Nation. Face the Nation, instead of focusing so much on, you know, the latest viral clip in Washington, which is this clip of Joe Biden saying clearly on the tarmac, clearly unscripted that social media's misinformation was killing people. Instead of that, Face the Nation focused on the facts and the data and good information for the public and possibly the viewers. For example, take a listen to this clip, which is pretty well said, I think, by Scott Gottlieb on Face the Nation. If 25% of the population remains susceptible to the virus, in absolute terms, that's still a lot of people. And this virus is so contagious, this variant is so contagious that it's going to infect the majority of them. Most people will either get vaccinated or have been previously infected, or they will get this Delta variant. And for most people who get this Delta variant, it's going to be the most serious virus that they get in their lifetime in terms of the risk of putting them in the hospital. It's in pretty stark terms, you know, and really important. And Gottlieb goes on to provide data for basically saying there's probably way more of people with this Delta variant out there because we're not actually tracking as well as we used to the number of cases. And it just is a lot of really interesting, interesting things. Like if you want to really protect yourself against the variant, you should use an N95 mask because that's the most effective at protecting the, the wearer rather than just preventing spread. Anyway, lots of lots of really, really valuable information it just my frustration with this whole facebook is killing people comment by joe biden that everyone's getting up in arms about is they're making this about a imaginary fight or i don't know maybe facebook is actually fighting the white house but what seems to me like an imaginary fight rather than the virus itself Mm -hmm. and yes the behaviors of people right and 
what disinformation online has actually looked like yeah. by disinformation experts. I yes. didn't see anything like that on my shows. I don't know if you did on yours and I'd be impressed. But like either cover the story with like the rigor it deserves or find the rigor in the angle that you've been assigned or something. No, I don't... you know what? I mean, you're exactly right. It's like you're practically co-writing the segment with me because <laughs> take a listen to this exchange, this series of exchanges from State of the Union when Dana Bash is talking with Vivek Murthy. She was interested in the back and forth, this little like tiff between the White House and Facebook more than she seemed to be concerned with what should actually be done to protect people from misinformation and this virus. And what about the specific accusation that you're making Facebook and other social media platforms a scapegoat? Well, my concern, you know, as Surgeon General, has been consistent from the beginning. We saw misinformation flowing around COVID-19 from the beginning, uh, and we've raised those concerns to these companies. And I've spoken about my concerns about misinformation publicly numerous times uh, over the last many months. Uh, my concern is that we're not seeing nearly enough progress here. And that's one of the reasons I issued this advisory. It's not entirely about the tech companies. I issued this advisory to call the entire country to action, recognizing there are steps all of us can take. But think about individuals, Dana. Each of us has a decision that, that we make every time we post something on social media. And I'm asking people to pause and to, to see, is the source accurate? Is it coming from a scientifically credible authority? And if it's not, or if you're not sure, don't share. Yeah, and to that point, you said that disinformation coming from so-called bad actors is also to blame, blame for this. And I want our viewers to have an idea of disinformation being spread on the right. Take a listen. There's nothing more anti-democratic, anti-freedom than pushing an experimental drug on Americans against their will. The idea that you would force people to take medicine they don't want or need is there a precedent for that in our in our lifetime? I feel like a vaccination in, in a weird way is just generally kind of going against nature. I wonder if that person has ever flown in an airplane or a car or taken an Advil. But uh, besides that, uh, President Biden did accuse social media platforms uh, of killing people. Do you think conservative media like Fox News are doing the same? Are they killing people, too, with rhetoric like you just heard? Well, then I think all of us, including the media, including individuals, health professionals, have a responsibility to share the truth about health as science dictates, as science informs us. So you heard a bit there at the start in the first clip, she's talking about the accusations Facebook's making about, oh, you're just complaining about us because we're a scapegoat. Murthy then says, no, that's not actually the case. But he turns towards what everyone can do to protect themselves against misinformation. But Dana Bash doesn't seem to be that interested in that conversation. She's interested in now, will the Surgeon General say that Fox News and other conservative media are equally to blame for spreading misinformation? And, you know, it's a legitimate question. It is a legitimate question to the Surgeon General who did put out that warning about social media. But it's, again very like what is your statement what is your like it's not about it doesn't feel like it's about like health information right. it feels like it's like 
are you going to label it this or are you going to label it that are you going to use these words on for this to describe this or these words to describe that rather than just it's about rhetoric right it's about rhetoric yeah rather than policy yeah or mitigations or <laughs> like yeah i just found it really frustrating and again like you're saying brendan it's a valid question to have a conversation with a top public health official about misinformation or dangerous rhetoric by people who have substantial platforms. But it ended up feeling like a fight between Facebook and Joe Biden, which maybe Joe Biden shouldn't have said such an inflammatory thing on the tarmac. But like literally, if he wouldn't have said that, would there have been no story about misinformation? Would there have been any story about the Delta variant? Like, no, there are other things to say about the virus right now that should have been examined with that angle rather than you know joe biden said something hot on a mic yeah absolutely i mean a lot of that is true i do think they would be talking about the delta variant but they wouldn't be talking about facebook to the extent they are to the extent they are right and you are also noting like oh were there any experts on talking about what's going on with misinformation and we did hear from chris krebs on face the nation he is the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, and he was on talking about exactly what's going on with Facebook and misinformation. John Dickerson had a conversation. Now, this is about the same topic, but listen to how much more information the viewer gets from it, more understanding than the exchange we just heard. I think. Let me ask you about Facebook. They responded to the administration and said, 85% of our users are interested in vaccines, basically saying the administration is wrong. But the Center for Countering Digital Hate, which the administration pointed to, said that there are basically about 12 Facebook accounts that are spreading this disinformation. Help us think through what the right way to think about this is. Uh, Unfortunately, both can be true at the same time. So yes, Facebook and other social media platforms can provide helpful information on uh, the facts behind the vaccine. And same thing happened in the elections last year. They had a a banner and a trust page. But but at the same time, there are those that can use those platforms for their own benefits to continue to push disinformation. Now, what has happened over the last several months is that some of those, the, the, the dirty dozen or whatever they're calling it, some of those have been uh, deplatformed. But the problem is, particularly for vaccine disinformation, it is metastasized. And it is now, you mentioned it earlier about the top down and the bottom up, the grassroots piece. It is now so pervasive that it exists just naturally within the ecosystem on Facebook and elsewhere. And that's where we need the platform to be more transparent in how their algorithms work, how engagement works, so that outside security experts and researchers can dig in and hold them accountable, that us as consumers of these platforms can hold them accountable and demand better. So do we have 15 seconds left? You mean the structure of, of Facebook is, is raising up just regular people who are spreading information? Unfortunately, uh, fear sells and those clicks drive more engagement. So don't you feel like, Naomi, you have a better understanding now of like what the issues are? 1000%, especially in comparison to the interviews I heard on my shows. Yeah, it's like, look, It used to be these big accounts that were spreading misinformation, but now it's kind of like made it into, you know, a host of many, 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 many users everywhere just complaining and spreading disinformation that ends up 
getting boosted potentially by algorithms and not properly corrected. So that's a, a really, really good point and really helps me understand what's going on. The other thing that Face the Nation did, in addition to all of this meaningful discussion on disinformation and misinformation, is it did something that should seem very simple, and that is ask an expert to combat some of the disinformation. You'll recognize the voice in this clip. Let me ask you about misinformation. From a medical perspective, what are the one or two things uh, that are out there that are the biggest sources of misinformation in your view? Probably the most pervasive is that somehow the vaccine itself is going to have an impact on fertility. And I think that that's discouraging a lot of young women from getting vaccinated. I think quite the opposite is true. What we've seen is COVID infection during pregnancy can be very dangerous. I think every woman who's an expectant mom or a prospective mom should be talking to their doctor about getting vaccinated. And Gottlieb goes on from there to explain a lot more, including a new program by the FDA that that is tracking moms to understand exactly the health and safety profile around vaccination. So there it is, combating misinformation, understanding misinformation, putting into context the spat between the White House and Facebook. It's just very, very valuable stuff on Face the Nation. Not to mention they did the exact same thing with some of the inflation that's going on right now. Oh, interesting. And had an expert on to talk about that. Wow. Yeah, so it was a great episode if you want to understand the news. But it didn't necessarily have a lot of newsmakers on. And like, mm. there wasn't this confrontation with the administration the way that you see on, for example, say the Union, which again, it's important to confront these people in power. But what I would have much preferred on State of the Union was demanding what the White House is doing beyond just criticizing Facebook to fight the pandemic. Right. right like now. federal policies that they yes. have. That they are privy to. Exactly. Which are plenty. Plenty of things they could be doing. That they could be doing that they're not doing. Exactly. All right, Naomi. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Polylog. Do we have a dialogue challenge? I guess, I mean, I would say, you know, it's fun to gossip from time to time. I never gossip. (laughs) But I would say, like, can you get to face the nation levels where, like, you're not just, you're like acknowledging what the gossip is, but you're trying to understand the positions of the people who you're gossiping about. Like, why are they doing what they're doing? Totally. And it makes me think we were in LA with some friends visiting from the East Coast. And it was so nice to have kind of policy conversations that were not about who's doing what or what state is passing what, but trying to understand the motivations and how to impact people. Just, it wasn't like a rant session, which can so happen so easily when you're talking politics, but more coming from a place of like genuine curiosity. And I found it so much more fulfilling. Yeah, it was about like policies that are relevant whether you're living in New York or living in California and not just like individual politicians or you know top players in the news yeah exactly if you have any conversations like that that you want to share with us you are welcome to email us at podcast at polylog.com you can also tweet at us I'm at Soto Naomi underscore 
I'm at Beastidal, and the show is at PolyLogCast. Thanks, everyone. And if you have an opportunity, please rate. Rate the show. Rate the show. There has to be some rating going on since we're not rating. (laughs) We gave up on ratings, but you should not give up on ratings. Don't give up your ratings. Exactly. We'd really appreciate five stars. We'll talk to you next week. I do have to say we have a five star safety rating. You know, no one's been hurt listening to the show. Thank you, Brendan. (laughs) Talk to you next week. Bye. Bye.